Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and in the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, as well as those of you who are joining online. Those of you who are familiar with the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes will remember how at the end of a cartoon, Porky Pig would come on and say, that's all, folks. Well, Porky's voice was that of Mel Blanc. And when he died, his family put an inscription on his tombstone that said, that's all, folks. Now, the question we find ourselves asking on Easter Sunday is, is that inscription true? When you die, is that it? This past week, the lives of five young adults in our city were tragically taken. And one can only imagine the grief and the pain that family members and friends are experiencing. But when death comes, I believe a question on the mind of every loved one that stands at the side of the grave is this, and that is, is that it? Is this where it all ends? Well, Christians believe the answer to that question hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in him. In other words, because Christ lives... Those who know and who trust him also will live with him for eternity. Now, on the other hand, if Christ has not been raised, well then, folks, that's all. That's all, folks. Our faith is futile. Our preaching is in vain. Atheist Richard Dawkins has said, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity becomes null and void. And he's right. The reason that Christians take the resurrection of Jesus so seriously and keep talking about it and keep defending it is because the Christian faith is built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, other religious teachers, they put their teaching out front and they say, follow my teachings. Jesus put himself out front, and he said, follow me. Other religious leaders said, this is the way that you should go to find truth. This is the way that you should go to find eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus essentially said, my resurrection will prove that I am the Son of God. That my teachings, that my promises, and my prophecies are true. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, 
If Christ has been raised from the dead, then he has the credentials and the certification that no other religious leader possesses. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Moses is dead. Confucius is dead. But according to Christianity, Christ is alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And church, that changes everything. Because Jesus lives, those who are in him one day will also rise from death through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's what this weekend is all about. It isn't about chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs. No, it is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is a reminder of the truth that because Christ lives, we too shall live. Amen? Amen. Amen. Which leads me to ask you, where do you stand with respect to Christ's resurrection? Based on our man on the street video, it's pretty obvious that a lot of people in our city do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ or are clearly unsure or undecided about his resurrection. And yet as I have talked to hundreds of people down through the years, People who have told me they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not one has indicated to me that they have seriously examined the evidence. And how tragic that is to dismiss the greatest event in human history without even considering the evidence. Well, in this message, I want to give some compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And right up front, I want to thank uh, some of the apologists and scholars for their helpful insights, including Dr. Gary Habermas, Michael Lycona, Mark Middleberg, and Lee Strobel. But first, would you stand with me as we dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for all that the resurrection means to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would focus our minds right now. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth of your resurrection. That you would give us clarity of thought. And Lord, that our hearts would be softened. And that lives would be changed both now and for eternity because we've been together in this time. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. On November 13th, 1998, Michelle Trudeau, brother of Justin Trudeau, and son of former Prime Minister Trudeau, was hiking high in the Kootenai Mountains some 200 miles east of Vancouver with three of his companions. On the way back to the park entrance, 
An avalanche overwhelmed the four men, sweeping them down a 200-foot slope and carrying Trudeau and another friend out into the frigid waters of Lake Kokanee. His friend managed to swim back to shore, but Trudeau was just too far out to get back in his own strength, and ultimately he succumbed to the lake's near-freezing water. To my, to my knowledge, his body has never been found. Now, there may be disagreement as to how it all happened and why, but no one, to my knowledge, has ever disputed the fact that Michel Trudeau died that day. While we do not have his body to prove that he's dead, we believe the news reports and the testimony of Michelle's friends who were there. And yet I think I can say with a high degree of certainty that no one here was, was there that day and witnessed Michelle Trudeau drown. Our belief regarding this tragedy and many others is based on the first-hand experiences of other people and the truthfulness of their word. We simply accept it as a fact of history. As we do, for example, the destruction of the World Trade Center and the tragic loss of over 3,000 lives on September 11, 2001, or the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, or Abraham Lincoln in 1867, or that of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. I highly doubt that anyone here witnessed any of those historical events in person, and yet we believe these events really happened. We accept them as historical fact. We hear the testimony of the witnesses, or we read the conclusions of those who interviewed the witnesses and investigated the details around the circumstances of the event, and we accept it as true. That's how we define history, the collection of eyewitness accounts of events that was compiled, that was edited, and woven together to become historical fact. Now, Bill Hybels says that he is fascinated by the fact that the whole classical eyewitness method of recording history is left unchallenged from antiquity right up to our present day with the exception of one incident that took place in approximately 30 AD in Palestine. And of course, I'm referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The classical historical method is okay for validating Christ's existence. Few people dispute the fact that Jesus was a real person, he was a great teacher, and he did wonderful works, and at some point in his life, he was arrested and crucified. However, many people today do not accept the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. And that's not because there's a lack of good evidence for the resurrection, but because most modern historians have a worldview that does not believe in a personal God or that miracles are possible. And so as people with such a worldview examine the resurrection account, they conclude that it's just simply impossible. There must be some logical explanation because dead bodies don't rise. End of argument. 
Well, Dr. John Montgomery writes, the only way we can know whether an event can occur is to see whether in fact it has occurred. The problem of miracles, he says, must be solved in the realm of historical investigation, not in the realm of philosophical speculation. In other words, we need to go to the historical evidence. We need to go to the witnesses, to the accounts that were written about those events. And we need to let them fall into place and not put them into place according to our preconceived notions. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in your scriptures where we find the Apostle Paul's account of the resurrection. I'm going to invite you to stand again and join me in reading this passage together. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Thank you. You may be seated. So let's examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. To begin with, Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried. Paul says here that Christ died for our sins. Now virtually no historian disputes the fact that Jesus died. The Roman historian Tacitus said Jesus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, which of course is referring to crucifixion. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Even skeptic John Crossan, co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, writes, Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can be. And yet even so, there are those who believe that Jesus did not die on the cross, but only temporary lost consciousness and was revived in the cool air of the cave. It's called the swoon theory. But think about that for a moment. Roman scourging and crucifixion were extremely brutal. Tacitus referred to it as the extreme penalty. Other historians called it cruel and disgusting. Many of those who were scourged were injured so badly that they died before they were ever put on a cross. But let's assume for a moment that Jesus really didn't die. So here he is, his body has been beaten, 
the flesh on his back, the sides of his torso have been ripped open from the scourging. He has a gaping wound in his side from a spear that was thrust there. His blood level is dangerously low. He's tightly wrapped up from head to toe in linens and 75 pounds of spices that are making it very difficult for him to breathe. He has no water or food, and he's been hugely deprived of sleep. In addition, he would somehow have had to extricate himself from the grave clothes, and then he would have to perform with wrists and feet that have been pierced and shattered by large Roman spikes the superhuman feat of rolling an extremely large boulder back up a trench without a sound so as not to disturb the Roman guard who were stationed outside of the tomb. And then he would have to appear to his disciples many miles away in such a way so as to give them the impression that he was victorious over death and doing really well. Now really, how plausible does that sound to you? An article in the Journal of American Medical Society back in 1986 concluded this. Clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear at odds with modern medical knowledge. There is little doubt that Jesus did in fact die on the cross and was buried in a tomb. A second evidence for the resurrection is the tomb of Jesus was empty, is empty. Based on the biblical account of Matthew 27, we know that after receiving permission from Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish court, or that, that uh, was called, that's called the Sanhedrin, He took the body of Jesus and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had hewn out of rock under the watchful eyes of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We also know that the religious leaders remembered Jesus' prediction that he would rise again on the third day. And so they went to Pilate and specifically asked him to place a guard at the tomb which he agreed to and so they secured Jesus tomb not only by posting a guard but also by putting a seal on the stone in front of the entrance of the tomb we then read this in Matthew chapter 28 after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, 
and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now once again, skeptical historians, they dispute this account because their worldview says miracles like this can't happen. The question that remains unanswered, however, is so then what happened to the body of Christ? Well, some believe that the enemies of Christ, the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities, stole the body. And yet, they were the ones who, yet if they were the ones who stole the body of Christ, they could have not only put an end to the resurrection story, but they also could have put an end to Christianity and the formation of the church before it even got off the ground. And they could have done that by simply announcing that Jesus' body would be on display on Main Street in Jerusalem at noon. That's all it would have taken. Game over. No Christianity. But you see, they didn't do that because they didn't have Christ's body or know where it is. Another theory is that the women went to the wrong tomb, which is highly unlikely because unlike men, women ask for directions. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, if they did go to the wrong tomb, all that the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities would have had to do was to point people to the right tomb and to show them the body of Christ. Of course, others believe that the disciples stole the body and then made up the resurrection story. In fact, when the religious leaders heard that Jesus' tomb was empty from the Roman guards that were at the tomb, they said to those soldiers that they were to tell others that Jesus' disciples came during the night and stole him away while they were asleep. Which, when you think about it, is ridiculous because if the guards were sleeping, remember, if the place or the person they were guarding disappeared, it meant their life. So this was serious business. But even if they were sleeping, how could they have known that it was the disciples who took the body? In fact, by saying the disciples stole the body... The religious leaders were admitting that the tomb was empty. They were admitting that the body of Christ was actually missing. You know, if the disciples stole the body and just made up this resurrection story, surely at least one of them would have come clean and kind of spilled the beans while he was being beaten or while he was facing execution. Back in 1973, Chuck Colson 
ended up in prison for the part that he played in what is referred to as the Watergate scandal, in which a group of no more than a dozen people conspired to cover up the Watergate break-in to protect the president, who was President Nixon at the time. And this is what Colson writes. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, you ask? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured all of that if it weren't true. On the other hand, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he says. Well said, Chuck Colson. Which leads to a third evidence for the resurrection. The disciples' radical transformation. When Jesus was crucified... His disciples fled and hid like little frightened children. However, a short time later, something happened to the disciples that radically changed their lives and their convictions. Something more than a missing body or an empty tomb. Something happened that gave them a renewed conviction, a renewed passion, a renewed boldness, and brought them all back together again. Something happened that motivated them to leave their occupations, to sell their possessions, and to boldly proclaim the, uh, their faith despite facing prison, torture, or even death. And that something was that they saw, they encountered the resurrected Christ. Peter the one who on the night that Jesus was arrested, he was afraid to admit to a servant girl that he even knew Jesus. This same Peter, just a few days after the resurrection, began to boldly proclaim the risen Christ to all who would listen. And tradition tells us that at his own request, when it was time for him to be martyred, and nailed to a cross, he requested to be hung on that cross upside down. How so do you ask? Because he encountered the risen Christ. Thomas, the one who doubted that Jesus had risen, the one who had heard various people talk about the risen Christ, having seen the risen Christ, he refused to believe it. He needed to see Jesus in person. He needed to touch Jesus to be convinced. And when Jesus appeared to him and let him touch his nail-scarred hands, Thomas dropped to his knees in worship and said, My Lord 
and my God. And he spent the rest of his years boldly proclaiming the truth of Christ's resurrection in South India until he was tortured and put to death for his beliefs. How is that possible, you ask? Because he personally saw and touched the risen Lord. You see, a resolve and a commitment like that does not come about by believing a lie. Especially if it's a lie that the disciples would have been involved in creating themselves. We all know that people will die for what they believe to be true. I mean, we regularly hear of religious extremists who blow themselves up in crowded marketplaces because they're convinced that their cause is right. But people will not die for what they clearly know to be false or to be a lie. Now, the disciples weren't the only ones who were transformed through encountering the risen Christ. The early church was birthed, became a reality. It grew like wildfire because Jesus also appeared to hundreds of others in that day. In the passage that we just read together earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say that the resurrected Christ appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Now, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It was written probably 10 to 20 years before the Gospels were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul wrote it around 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I want you to notice that he starts out in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, what I received... I passed on to you. What did he mean when he said, for what I received? He's referring here to a well-known creed which he likely received from the apostle Peter and James while he was visiting with them in Jerusalem about five years or so after Jesus' resurrection. And that creed said that Christ died for our sins. That creed said that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, in those days, um, people did not have the luxury as we do now to, you know, write things down or have iPads and, you know, record all this stuff. In those days, some of the most critical truths that people wanted to pass on and hang on to, they memorized them. And yes, it was eventually written down, but most people memorized it and then would go and share it with others. And so this creed, which Paul quotes here, along with many other creeds, it was being memorized, it was being passed around among the early Christians from church to church. And that was happening around five or so years after Jesus' resurrection. 
Now, folks, that is incredibly significant because it tells us that within a few short years after Jesus' resurrection, the church was boldly proclaiming the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to all that would listen. It is also significant because it snuffs out the view held by some skeptics that the resurrection was nothing more than a myth that the disciples made up. Experts in this area tell us that it takes a minimum of two generations for mythology to corrupt a solid core of historical fact. And so you see, with these creeds being written and circulated only a few years after the resurrection, and all of the New Testament books being written and circulated within 60 years after the resurrection, we can know for certain that they weren't made up. We can know for certain that they weren't tampered with or changed or altered because most of the people who witnessed the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they were still alive. And they could actually verify the accuracy of these creeds and of these scriptures. There were literally hundreds of people in the church of that day who were in a position to say, hey, wait a minute. That's not right. I was there. That is not what happened. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying, if you don't believe what has been written about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then go and ask the hundreds who witnessed his death and resurrection. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Check it out. See if we're making this up. They weren't making it up. And that's why the church continued to grow. Otherwise, it would have died before it even started. Paul was also saying that the resurrection account was more than a symbolic representations of higher spiritual truths as some believe today. No, he was saying that the resurrection literally happened. Jesus literally rose from the grave. It wasn't a symbol. For 40 days, Jesus literally appeared more than a dozen times to well over 500 different people in different locations. He talked with people. He ate with people. At one point, he appeared to some 500 people at the same time, which, by the way, removes the notion that people who saw Jesus were hallucinating. Because experts in this will tell you that hallucinations are individual events. They're like dreams. They can't be shared by two people at the same time. No, make no mistake. Christ's appearances were real historical events that revolutionized people's lives. A fourth evidence for the resurrection of Christ is the radical transformation of James, the brother the half-brother of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we're told that Jesus had at least four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. 
And Mark chapter 6, verse 3 indicates that Jesus also had half-sisters whose names we aren't given. The Gospels also reveal that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now, frankly, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. I mean, if your older brother was perfect in every way, adored by thousands, and made grandiose claims about himself, would you even like him? Much less follow him? We see the same thing in the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, sold him off into slavery for much of the same kind of reasons. Mike Lacona observes that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he didn't entrust the care of his mother to his half-brothers. Do you notice that? No, he entrusted the care of his mother to, to John, his disciple, who was a believer. And sometimes later, though, we read in Acts 15, verse 12, and Galatians 1, 19, that something dramatic has happened to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Not only is he now a follower of Christ and an apostle of Jesus, but he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, he indicates that James was so thoroughly convinced that Jesus is Messiah that he died as a martyr for Christ. So what brought about this radical transformation in Jesus' half-brother James? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us the risen Christ appeared to him. You see, most of his life, James didn't believe in Jesus. And when Jesus died, he likely figured, well, that's the end of it. But when Jesus appeared to him alive after his crucifixion, that changed everything. His life made a 180. Because he knew Jesus is alive. A fifth evidence for the resurrection of Christ is the radical transformation of Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, then known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was an enemy of the church, and he was committed to persecuting Christians. He had no use for Christ. He had no use for Christians. He was offended by Christ's message and the gospel. He was offended by the idea that the temple and sacrifice for sin was no longer necessary. It was blasphemy as far as he was concerned. And so he was on a mission to wipe out Christians and the Christian faith. But then Paul met the living, resurrected Christ. And his life was radically transformed. This persecutor of the Christian faith, this skeptic, who regarded Jesus as a false prophet, became the greatest champion of Christ and of the church to the place where he said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. How does one explain such a transformation? How does one explain how a Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee, who worshipped only one God, now suddenly worships Jesus, the Son of God? Because the risen Christ appeared to him. You see, when you meet the resurrected Christ, your life will never be the same again. Tim Keller says, people say to me, I could never become a Christian. And when I ask them why, they say, well, there are parts of the Bible that I find offensive. There are parts of the Bible I just can't accept. Years ago, he says, people were often offended by what the Bible had to say about money. They weren't too excited about giving it. Today in New York, he says, they are much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. Keller says, I often say to them, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is Lord. And you are going to have to accept all that he said. On the other hand, if he's still in the grave, then you need not worry about anything that he said. But here's my point. Paul was really offended and ticked off at Christianity and the claims that Christ made, the way that people are today. But when he met the resurrected Christ, all the things that offended him about Christ's teachings didn't matter anymore because he realized that Jesus is God. He is Lord and King. He is who he claimed to be. And as a result, he had a choice to make, either to reject and walk away from Christ or to fall to his knees and worship him as Lord and King. Down through the history, people have been faced with the same decision as they have examined the evidence encountered the risen Christ. And some have chosen to walk away. Others have chosen to embrace him. Sir Lionel Lacou is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful trial lawyer in the world. Lacou was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth and eventually became a justice on his country's highest court. When Lacou was confronted by the claims of Christ, he decided to apply his expertise in law and logic to examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His conclusion was this. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. But you see, even though in his own words, the evidence overwhelmingly supported the claims of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, Sir Lionel Lacou had to make a decision about Jesus. While he could not deny what he knew to be true, and he became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Another was Dr. Simon Greenleaf, 
former professor of law at Harvard University. He helped bring that law school into prominence and has been called the greatest authority on legal evidences in the history of the world. He was a skeptic, always mocking Christians in his law classes. Some of his students, however, just wouldn't let him off the hook. And they challenged him to take the principles that he was teaching in class on the laws of legal evidences and apply them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, he finally took on the challenge. And as a result of his research, as a result of his findings, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he went on to write that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established facts of history according to the rules of evidence administered in a court of justice. Folks, these people turned from skeptics to believers because they investigated the truth. My question is, have you really opened yourself up to investigate the truth and to look at it honestly? Or would you say you're just looking for reasons not to believe? Award-winning journalist Lee Strobel says that that was true of him. Strobel is now a follower of Christ. But years ago, he considered himself to be an atheist. He says, I had no desire to investigate the Christian faith because I was too proud to admit to anyone I needed God in my life. And I had no intention of changing my self-centered and immoral lifestyle, which I knew would need, I would need to abandon if I became a Christian. And so he says, I would read just enough philosophy, just enough history to find support for my skepticism, just enough to convince myself that God was merely a product of wishful thinking on the part of the intellectually weak. And then get this. I love how open he is. He says, I relished any information, any book, any news clip that reinforced my skepticism of the Christian faith. But then one day, his wife stunned him with the news that she had become a follower of Christ. His initial reaction was one of fear, a fear that the carefree, risk-taking, fun-loving woman that he had married would now turn into, and I quote, some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all night prayer vigils. But instead of that, he was surprised, he was even fascinated by the fundamental changes that began to happen to her character, her integrity, her personal confidence, her attitudes. And over time, God used the life of his wife to create a longing within him to have what she had. And Lee being, began a two-year investigation of the Christian faith, utilizing the skills that he had learned through his Master of Law degree from Yale University. He interviewed every leading scholar and authority across North America, challenging them with his objections 
regarding belief in God, the validity of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just to name a few of the topics. He read books. He studied history. He explored archaeology. And for the first time in his life, he actually opened the Bible and read it. The deeper that he dug, the more that he examined the evidence, the stronger the case for Christ and the God of the Bible became. And yet, despite the mounting evidence, he kept raising questions. He kept raising more objections. But with the passing of time, he had to admit that they were just excuses. They were smoke screens designed to help him ignore what he knew to be true. He didn't need more proof. He needed to change. He needed a heart change. He needed to humble himself and put his trust in Christ. While the day came when Lee could no longer deny what he knew to be true, he writes, on, and so on November 9th, 1981, I talked with God in a heartfelt and unedited prayer, admitting and turning from my wrongdoing and receiving the forgiveness and the eternal life through Jesus Christ. I told him that with his help, I wanted to follow him and his ways from here on out. He says there were no lightning bolts, there were no audible voices, there were no tingly sensations, but he says, I knew I had crossed the threshold into a new experience with God. By God's grace, he says, I had become become something different, a child of God forever adopted into his family through the historical risen Christ. And from that moment on, as he now entered into this personal relationship with Jesus and he opened himself up to Jesus' teaching and he opened himself up to Christ's influence and Christ's direction in his life, God began to change him from the inside out. So much so that only months after becoming a Christ follower, his five-year-old daughter, Allison, went up to her mother and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. Here was a girl who had only known a father who in his own words was profane, angry, verbally harsh, and all too often absent. And even though she had never interviewed a scholar, even though she had never analyzed the data, never investigated the historical evidence, she had seen up close in her dad the transformation she saw in her father, the impact, the influence that the living Jesus can have on a person's life. And friends, that's the kind of influence the living, resurrected Christ will have on your life if you'll stop running from him, if you'll stop ignoring him, and like Lee, invite him to be part of your life. I am here to tell you, friends, that I live for Jesus because he's alive. He's alive. I have no doubt.
that he rose from the grave and that he lives in me and through me. I serve, we serve a risen savior, a God who is alive. And that truth has made all the difference in my life. Easter means that a living, radiant, powerful Jesus Christ is walking at your side and my side on the weariest roads of life. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that the same power that brought Jesus back to life, that same power can change every person from the inside out. That power can restore your marriage. It can redeem your family, your relationships. It can transform your attitudes. You see, it's not that Christianity is untrue. It's just that for so many people, it's untried. No one has embraced the living Jesus. They have kept him at a safe, comfortable distance. I challenge you not to file the evidence that I've presented today for future reference. I challenge you not to dismiss it as yesterday's stock prices. I challenge you to act on it and to respond to the living Christ who can forgive you of all the regrets of your past, who can empower you through his spirit to live in victory in the present and who can take you safely to live forever with God in heaven. We're going to close this service by responding to the truth of God's word through worship. And as we do, I'm going to make my way down here to the front. I'm going to ask our pastors who are present, our prayer partners, to join me up here. And we're going to join you in worshiping. And as we're worshiping, I want you to ask not only yourself, but ask the Lord. Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus alive? Is he in you, living through you? Or is he just a great teacher from your perspective or a good man that you kind of admire from a distance? If you want to have the living Christ in you, transforming you, changing you, If you want to know this Jesus, to walk with this Jesus, and to live forever with this Jesus, I want to invite you to come up anytime while we're worshiping. And we'd love to pray with you, answer your questions. If you've got uh, challenges that you're struggling with and you just want someone to pray with you, we're here for you. Is Jesus... Lord, is he in you, living through you? Or is he a good person that you admire from a distance? Don't miss the adventure that he has for you. Don't miss the adventure. He loves you. He has your best interests at heart. And all he's asking is that you would trust him you would give your life to him. If you want someone to pray with you before you go, please see us before you do. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.